Greetings, this is podcast number 77 of Blast the Right. I'm Jack Clark from TheRationalRadical.com, www.TheRationalRadical.com. Today, we're going to present some data about income and wealth distribution that you've probably never before seen brought together in one place. Make sure your seatbelt is securely fastened. Let's get right into it. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms. Greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. And greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. Thank you very much. Those were excerpts from Michael Douglas's famous Greed is Good speech in the film Wall Street, where he played Greedmeister Gordon Gecko. In this podcast, you're going to see examples of the results of greed that'll make you want to grab a hold of a greedy person and scream, This is too much to bear. In my exposure to various news and commentary sources, I often come across statistics that illustrate glaring economic inequalities sometimes of income, sometimes of wealth, sometimes within the U.S., sometimes worldwide. I'll read one of these and think, wow. A day or so later, I'll hear another and say to myself, that's unbelievable. So I'll go check the stat and it'll turn out to be true. Then the next week, I'll have a third one laid on me and get filled with rage at such injustice. I thought, what if all these kinds of stats were laid out in one place for you to see? That would really blow your mind, wouldn't it? A sort of super, wow, this is unbelievable, this outrages me effect. That's what you may well experience here. Have you ever wondered how much wealth do those at the top control? How bad are things? Today you'll get the answer. All this dovetails nicely with last week's podcast, which was about the massive free market sham that the right wing has perpetrated. The so-called free market isn't a market free of government interference, as the right would have you believe. No, in reality, it's a market heavily regulated by the government in a pro-corporate fashion. The right shouts, free market, free market, free market, to try to justify the terrible results their pro-corporate market structure produces. Today, we'll have some concrete evidence of just such unwelcome results, both domestically and internationally. By the way, the counterpart in the international economic system to the domestic U.S. free market sham is called free trade, which is equally a misnomer. See Podcast 56 about that. The order I'll go in here is income in the U.S., then income in the world, followed by wealth in the U.S., and then finally wealth in the world. That winds up being an order of increasing inequality, of increasing evidence of greed, of increasing proof that the right wing has been there. You're going to hear a lot of numbers here. 
If some particularly strike your fancy, you can jot them down. Otherwise, just listen and get the general drift, if you know what I mean. My sources are, it's a long list, The Progressive Magazine, the website of Professor Michael Curl at Trinity University, The Financial Times, OneWorld.net, Bloomberg.com, McClatchy Tribune News Service, Op-Ed Columns in the New York Times, RushLimbaugh.com, FairEconomy.org, AmericanRhetoric.com, The Guardian Newspaper, The Toronto Star, and ABCNews.com. Income in the United States. Right there on the home page of my website, it tells you that in the year 2000, 10% of Americans took in 46% of all income. I could also have added, in that year, 25% of your fellow citizens grabbed 67% of all earnings in the U.S. There are, however, perhaps even more dramatic ways to look at this, to show the real concentration of income at the very top. Let's take the wealthiest one-tenth of one percent of all Americans. There are 130,500 such taxpayers. They have more income than the 120 million Americans at the bottom. Yes, you heard me right. One-tenth of one percent of U.S. citizens make, quote, more than the bottom 40 percent of all Americans combined, close quote. Is the situation hopefully improving? Sad to say, the trend line is not good. This insanity has gotten worse for the average person since George Bush became president. Between 2000 and 2004, average real incomes fell by 3%, but those near the top saw increases over 50%, and that very top group of one-tenth of 1%, our good friends, their income more than tripled during those years. Beyond the recent past, this insanity has been getting worse for decades. I just told you that the top one-tenth of one percent make more than the bottom 120 million Americans. But in 1979, this top one-tenth of one percent made only one-third as much as the bottom 120 million Americans. Still vastly unequal, but this concentration of income in the U.S. has therefore gotten over three times worse in the past 25 years. Let's go on to global income. As you should keep in mind whenever we discuss global figures, the worldwide economic pie is, per capita, much smaller than in the U.S. The pie is so much larger in the U.S. that even those at the bottom generally don't starve to death, but not so globally. When you're at the bottom in many parts of the world, starvation and other forms of premature death stare you in the face. So income, and as you'll see wealth inequality on the international scale, have much more immediate and dire consequences for flesh and blood humans than they often do in the United States. The numbers. Worldwide, 25% of the people wind up with 75% of the income, even worse than the U.S. figure of 67%. The trend line here is also not good. Over the decades, the share of global income garnered by those at the top has been increasing and the share of everybody else decreasing. Now we go on to wealth. Income inequalities over time translate into even greater wealth inequalities. 
That's because those at the bottom have to spend virtually every cent they earn to try to survive, while those at the top, no matter how profligately they spend, still have income left over. So their savings accumulate, and these ballooning assets produce wealth inequality figures, both domestically and internationally, that are even greater than those for income. Wealth is, essentially, excess income accumulated over time. Regarding wealth distribution in the U.S., a number I have often used on this podcast is 70%. A mere 10% of Americans control 70% of the wealth. That means 90% of the population has to get by on 30% of the money. There's just not enough left to go around. Even more amazing, the richest 1% of Americans have more wealth than the bottom 90%. Now here's what is, to me, the most striking way of all to look at this. The 400 richest Americans are all billionaires. Would you believe that they have as much wealth as the entire bottom half of the nation? Yes, these 400 families have as much wealth as 57 million other American families. Jaw-dropping, isn't it? In fact, this is what I had to go look up. I couldn't believe it, but it's true. The 400 richest Americans own assets worth $1.3 trillion. That's $1,300 billion. Not $13 billion or $130 billion, but $1,300 billion. Which is just about the same amount as the combined assets of 57 million other American families. 400 versus 57 million. Can't get much more unequal than that, can you? You may be wondering, how does the U.S. compare to other nations? Not well. For example, compared to our 70% share controlled by the top 10%, in France it's 61%, in the U.K. 56%, in Germany 44%, and in Japan 39%. In all those countries, wealth distribution is not fair, but it's far less unfair than in the U.S. Let's take a break, and when we return, we'll first cover global wealth, and then put all these numbers in a larger context. There will be fewer statistics, I promise you. Last, the right, the right. Before we get back to the main segment, I want to mention something. It's been brought to my attention that some listeners, because I often have the same content in the closing remarks, don't continue after they hear, well, that'll about wrap it up for today. Okay, fair enough. But sometimes there are new things in the closing remarks that I want to bring to your attention. Since one of them today is real important to me, I figured maybe I better put it right in the middle of the podcast. Here it is. Building Blast the Right's audience is a prime goal of mine. The premier podcasting site is Podcast Alley. They post the top 10 on their home page. Being on the top 10 garners lots of new listeners. For the past four months, we've been on the top 10. A day or so ago, Blast the Right got kicked off the top 10 by a radical right-wing economics podcast and a Bible reading podcast. 
I sent out an appeal from MySpace, and we seem to be back on the top ten. But not for long, perhaps. So I want to make everyone an offer you can't refuse. Or so I hope. You get a half hour a week, two hours a month, of a show you enjoy listening to. And what will I ask in return? Ten seconds of your time once a month to go vote for Blast the Right at Podcast Alley, which you can do from the one-click link on the podcast homepage. Two hours for ten seconds. You could even go vote right now if you want to. Deal? Cool. On to global wealth distribution. These are the hairiest numbers of all, to use a technical economics term. The figure I've been using on the podcast up until now was from a 1999 article in the British newspaper The Guardian. It said 20% of the people in the world control 86% of all the wealth. There are newer, probably more reliable, and definitely more disturbing numbers. A study was just released by the World Institute for Development Economics Research, based in Helsinki. It's part of the United Nations University. According to the authors of the study, theirs is, quote, the most comprehensive study of personal wealth ever undertaken. The study defined wealth as physical and financial assets, like personal savings and home, land, and stock ownership, less debts, close quote. Okay, what are the results? Quote, the richest 1% of adults owned 40% of global assets in the year 2000, close quote. The comparable U.S. figure is 32.5%. In the U.S., 1% of the population owns 32.5% of everything. The richest 1% in the world own 40% of everything. Both shockers, no? And check this out. How much do you think you have to be worth to be among the 1% of wealthiest adults in the world? $500,000. Quite a few Americans who don't think of themselves as particularly wealthy are in reality more wealthy than 99% of the other people on the planet. What about the top 10%? While in the U.S. the richest 10% own 70% of the wealth, Worldwide, the top 10% control 85% of all assets. The qualification for the world's top 10% is only $61,000 in net worth. Just think of how many of we Americans who think of ourselves as lower middle class are actually more wealthy than 90% of the world's population. On top of all this, let me tell you two other statistics from this study that are definitely worth throwing out at someone. Quote, the richest 2% of adults in the world own more than half the world's wealth, close quote. While, quote, the assets of half of the world's adult population account for barely 1% of global wealth, close quote. Put another way, quote, personal wealth is distributed so unevenly across the world that the richest 2% of adults own more than 50% of the world's assets, while the poorest half hold only 1% of wealth. Close quote. In the U.S., the poorest half own 2.8%. Since the U.S. is so much wealthier than the rest of the world, 
You can only imagine how much suffering and death results when the poorest 50% around the world have just 1% of a much smaller per capita pie of wealth to try to survive on. You probably already can predict in what parts of the world this wealth is concentrated. 90% of global wealth is found in quote, North America, Europe, and high-income Asian and Pacific countries such as Japan and Australia. Close quote. In other words, mostly the former colonial powers. Big surprise there, huh? As far as the U.S. alone, by my calculations, the U.S. share of global wealth is probably 30%. The U.S. has less than 5% of the world's population, but 30% of its wealth. Okay, that's income and wealth, domestic and global. However outrageous all these stats are, there's another one I recently read that, for some reason, has made maybe even a greater impression on me, perhaps because it sheds light on the process by which such inequities develop. The Center for Labor Market Studies at Northeastern University compiled this data. The top five Wall Street firms are Bear Stearns, Goldman Sachs, Lehman Brothers, Merrill Lynch, and Morgan Stanley. You've probably seen or heard commercials for some of these. Maybe you have investments with them. Well, it's traditional among these firms to award their employees large year-end bonuses. How large were they expected to be for 2006? There are 173,000 employees and they were expected to share 36 to 44 billion dollars in bonuses. Quote, with the bulk of the gains accruing to the top 1,000 or so highest paid managers." Close quote. But no, that's not the amazing stat, or at least the most amazing stat. It's what I'm going to compare it with that'll make you gasp. Unless, of course, you're a right-winger, in which case you'll get a warm glow inside. 93 million American workers are in production and non-supervisory positions. Now listen carefully. Quote, Their combined real annual earnings from 2000 to 2006 rose by $15.4 billion, which is less than half of the combined bonuses awarded by the five Wall Street firms for just one year. Close quote. As the director of the Center for Labor Market Studies put it, quote, just these bonuses for one year overwhelmingly exceed all the pay increases received by these workers over the entire six-year period, close quote. Overwhelmingly is actually an understatement, since the Wall Street bonuses for 2006 for the five firms are actually two to three times all the pay increases all those 93 million American workers got over the past six years. This truly is economics right-wing style. The elite workers at these Wall Street firms, the ones who got the bulk of the bonuses, they produce no goods or services. They basically manipulate money from one account to another. For example, quote, providing liquidity for different kinds of variable rate mortgages, close quote. Useful to some extent, but it's the 93 million American workers in production and non-supervisory capacities who provide the actual goods and services that make the country run, that are essential to making the country run. 
They should be the ones getting the Wall Street level pay bonanzas. And not just because of what they do, but because of the improving way they've been doing it. The study pointed out that, quote, between 2000 and 2006, labor productivity in the non-farm sector of the economy rose by an impressive 18%. But workers were not paid for that impressive effort. During that period, the inflation-adjusted weekly wages of workers increased by just 1%. Close quote. According to New York Times columnist Bob Herbert, unlike in the decades after World War II, nowadays, quote, the once strong link between productivity gains and real wage increases has been severed. The mystery to me is why workers aren't more scandalized. If your productivity increases by 18% and your pay goes up by 1%, you've been dealt a handful of jokers in a game in which jokers aren't wild. Workers have received some modest increases in benefits over the past six years, but most of the money from their productivity gains by far, it's not even a close call, has gone into profits and the salaries of top executives. Close quote. Totally unfair. In other words, once again, right-wing economics. And if it's happening here, you know it's happening around the world, wherever else right-wing economic policy holds sway. In that regard, a U.S. official back in 1948 said something quite instructive. George Kennan was at the time head of planning at the U.S. State Department. He wrote, quote, We have about 60% of the world's wealth, but only 6.3% of its population. Our real task in the coming period will be to maintain this position of disparity. We need not deceive ourselves that we can afford the luxury of altruism and world benefaction. The day is not far off when we are going to have to deal in straight power concepts. The less we are hampered then by idolistic slogans, the better. Kennan's wealth statistics are outdated, but the principle he laid out to guide our foreign policy still is, I would suggest, the operative one. Our real task in the coming period will be to maintain this position of disparity. A similar principle, of course, guides internal domestic policy in the U.S. with our not-quite-as-bad-as-worldwide, but still outrageous, inequitable distribution of income and wealth. The right wing's real task, despite all its blather about free markets, etc., etc., is to maintain its, quote, position of disparity, close quote. Remember the clip we opened with? The real-life stock speculator Ivan Bosky, on whom Michael Douglas's character is loosely based, did infamously declare to a laughing and cheering audience in 1985, greed is healthy. Delivering a commencement speech that spring, he told them, quote, Greed is all right, by the way. I want you to know that. I think greed is healthy. You can be greedy and still feel good about yourself. Close quote. Of course, Boski was put in jail for the things he did in pursuit of feeling good about himself. The point is, right-wingers aren't just movie characters like Michael Douglas's Gordon Gecko. They're real people causing increased misery, suffering, pain, and death to other real people. As Bob Herbert nails it perfectly, that's the quote, 
reason why the power elite get bent out of shape at the merest mention of a class conflict in the U.S. The fear is that the cringing majority that has taken it on the chin for so long will wise up and begin to fight back. Close quote. So what does the future portend? Happily, the public at long last does seem to have taken notice of this horrific inequity. The cringing majority seems to be waking up. Nearly three-quarters of all Americans in a recent poll said the growing gap between rich and poor is a major issue. As you might expect, the higher up the income scale you go, the fewer people were concerned about this. But there's a heck of a lot more people making thirty to fifty thousand dollars a year than three hundred to five hundred thousand or thirty to fifty million, and that vast majority is concerned big time about how they're getting screwed. The Democrats now in control of Congress are poised to take some first steps in a positive direction. Quote, Democrats are considering proposals to shrink the income gap such as boosting the minimum wage, scrutinizing executive pay, increasing tax credits available to the poor, and making health care and higher education more affordable. Close quote. Democrats have already passed an increase in the minimum wage. If more of the people adversely affected by right-wing economic policy wake up, a lot more positive actions can be taken to make our society a more just place. I'll close by telling you that much more so than in the U.S., at least so far, people around the world have been waking up in massive numbers and taking concrete action. In one of the next few podcasts, I'll give you some examples of powerful steps being taken in some other nations to achieve global economic justice. Well, that'll about wrap it up for today. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend about Blast the Right and vote for Blast the Right at podcastalley.com. There's a one-click link to do each of those on the podcast homepage. A special shout-out to all you live 365 listeners. Great to have you on board. Please consider becoming a regular subscriber to the podcast. A couple of quick housekeeping notes. I can't reply to messages on my MySpace page. It's broken. I gotta get a new page set up. So, those of you who've sent me messages that need a reply, I want to respond, but I can't. So please, send me it in the form of an email. Another thing, I realize I keep saying I'm going to have listener email, and I haven't had it in a while. So, I think what I might do is, all these listener emails that are real great that I wanted to share with you, I think I might just make an entire podcast with listener emails and my responses to them. A correction, so as not to mislead you or anything. I mispronounced the word mores last week, as a listener pointed out to me. I called it mores. You know, studying for that SAT test decades ago, you didn't need to know how to pronounce the words. Now it comes back to haunt me. Finally, next week I'm undergoing a diagnostic medical procedure. So I might not be able to post on Thursday. It may be Friday, Saturday or maybe not at all next week. Most likely, it'll be posted by Friday night. Music credits. The break music was The Schnee Speaks by KG House combined with the alternate Blast the Right theme by Nye's Music and Not the One Blues by Burnshee Thornside. I forgot to credit the artist the last time I used this song. Sorry. We'll close with a bit of We Can't Make It Here by James McMurtry. 
Links to all the music I play on Blast the Right can be found on my music resources page. Links to all the statistics and quotations I use can be found on my data resources page. Both of them are linked to off the main podcast homepage. As I mentioned, keep all that great email coming in. My address is rational at adelphia.net. If you prefer, you can also call in and leave a comment for me to play on Blast the Right. Dial 310-933-5891 and leave your message. You can also Skype me at Jack from Blast the Right. So, until next time, I'll sign off and say I love you all, including all you right-wing misguided souls. We'll work for food, we'll die for oil, we'll kill for power, and to us the spoils. The billionaires get to pay less tax, the working poor get to fall through the cracks. So let them eat jelly beans, let them eat cake, let them eat sh- whatever it takes. They can join the Air Force or join the Corps if they can't make it here anymore. So that's how it is. That's what we got, and if the president wants to admit it or not, you can read it in the paper, read it on the wall, hear it on the wind if you're listening at all. Get out of that limo and look us in the eye. Call us on a cell phone, tell us all why. In Dayton, Ohio, or Portland. Ohio.